Look with me, if you would, at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. The guy who wrote this, his name is Paul. And Paul says these words, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I want to share something with you this morning. It's, it's, it's something I pray that as I speak this morning, you'll experience the love of Christ. This week I was going through a box of keepsakes. Uh, I've said before I'm not super sentimental, but I was going through this box of keepsakes and as I was looking for some things and preparing for uh, talking to you this morning, it shed some light on, on what I want to talk to you about. And it's something that I, as I get older, I just think more and more about this. It's that idea of finishing well. Just this past week, I celebrated my 46th birthday, and Lord willing, Jennifer and I will celebrate 24 years of marriage next week, and I think as I get older, this is just something I think more and more about. Here's what I'm doing. I'm asking myself this question, am I numbering my days? Am I keeping my eye on the true prize? Am I finishing well? The reality is that when you look around, the vast majority of people, they're not finishing well. Think about some of the people that got married around the same time that you did. And, and I think about that. I think about some of the trouble and tragedy that some of those marriages have been through. And, and I think about the ones, many of them, that haven't finished well. As I look at people and I look at their sense of integrity, I see a lot of people that start off well, but they don't finish well. As I think about people and their love for Jesus Christ and how they first came to know Christ and this passion that filled their soul, I'm certainly not calling any folks out, but you can definitely see this in the church and in church planting. It's sort of that idea of, yeah, whatever happened to them? Do you, do you remember? Have you ever received a friend request on Facebook and Maybe it's from somebody that you knew a long time ago, maybe from high school or college. They were sort of that popular, good-looking person. And you get this request, and you sort of go, and you look at their wall, and you're like, yeah, they, they peaked too soon. <laughs> but that's what it feels when I'm looking at some marriages or I'm looking at people's relationship to Jesus Christ. And I want to exhort us not to just be people that start out well but that we'd be people who finish well. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I pray this morning that you would speak through me to your people. I pray that I would present the truth and love this morning. I pray that this morning that the people here today would know that they're loved by you. I pray that I would bring you honor and glory this morning. I pray that this morning would not just be an exercise in listening and note-taking. I pray that the seeds of your word would fall on good soil this morning and bring around real fruit, true change. I pray for understanding, wisdom, and transformation. And it's in all these things I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I heard a preacher use this illustration. It helped me to sort of, in my understanding, I want to share it with you this morning. Uh, this is a true story. 
that uh, long ago when a person thought that they were ready to be released from a place called a sanitarium, um, they wouldn't just, the authorities of the sanitarium wouldn't just sort of take their word for it, okay, yep, go ahead, uh, but they would run them through sort of this antiquated test. And what they would do is they would, they would walk them down a hallway into a janitor's closet and, um, and they, would, they would administer this test. And really, they're asking themselves this question, is this person ready to be released from the sanitarium? They'd walk them down the, the hallway into a janitor's closet and they would hand them a mop. They would then take a stopper, they would put it in the bottom of the sink, they would turn the water on, the water would begin to rise until the water was spilling over the edges of the sink. Almost instinctively, the person holding the mop would begin to mop the wet floor. Then the person uh, that's conducting the test, they would leave that janitor's closet and they would lock the door behind them, wet floor, mop in hand, stopper in the bottom of the sink, water rising up, spilling over the edge of the sink, they would leave that hopefully soon-to-be-released patient, they would leave them for 30 minutes. If upon their return 30 minutes later, they, they, they found this person still mopping wet floors, they knew that it wasn't time for he or she to go anywhere yet. They, they knew that it wasn't time for that person to be released because that person had failed to identify the root problem. At Harvest, we know that the root problem wasn't a wet floor. The root problem was a stopper in the sink and the water running. And until that person identified, literally pulled the stopper out and turned off the sink, that person would find themselves in a maddening and perpetual state of mopping. And I find that a tragic parable as to how, many, how so many Christians conduct their walk with Jesus. So many Christians find themselves like the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, they, they took a little journey. It was supposed to be six weeks from, from, from Egypt to the promised land. And, and it turned into this 40-year debacle where they kept making perpetual laps around Mount Sinai, mopping those same old floors. So many Christians were the same way. We deal with the same old proverbial wet floors in our lives called sin. And I'm not here this morning saying you, you, you in a spirit of condemnation. I'm telling you, I know what it's like to struggle with stuff. I know there are, there are struggles in my life that by God's grace, I'm working on. I'm growing in. They're dating back to my high school days. I know what it's like to deal with the same old stuff. And some of you are in that same place. You know what it's like if we're really honest, mopping the same floors, doing the same things, praying about the same kinds of sin patterns in my life. Here's the thing, I've seen this over and over in the life of the church. For instance, this summer, our men, they're going through a weekly study. It's on dealing with spiritual disciplines and the spiritual sweat that it requires to live a life of holiness. Our women, fantastic study on putting on the armor of God. And and just like in years past, many will come and it's legit and it's sincere. They'll buy the book, they'll take the notes, and along the way, some will make true commitment to change. This time, it's serious. Listen, this time I'm, I'm going to stop the lying. I'm going to stop the immorality, stop the pornography. I'm going to stop the gossip, stop the slander, and it's legit and it's sincere. 
Their, their intention is legit. But here's the problem. After they do that, two days later, two weeks later, two months later, a year later, they're back to mopping the same old floors in their life called sin. And again, so many Christians, their walk isn't upward. It's sort of in a circle. And there's no real progress and they're dealing with the same old issues. I want you to know this morning that I'm not here to give you another mop. I want to deal with the stopper. And the stopper that Paul deals with in our text this morning, here's the stopper. He deals with this whole issue of finishing well. If you get nothing else I say this morning, I want you to get this statement. Starting well is easy. Finishing well, that's the challenge. I'm the best husband in the world two days after the marriage conference. So what? Some of you were the best Christians in the world five minutes after you gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Anyone can start out well in, in the throes of an emotional high or, or a new experience. God's saying big deal. Finishing well. That's the challenge. I know it's summer, but humor me. How's everybody doing on their New Year's resolutions? Right? We get some bold dreams, don't we? This year I'm going to eat better. This year I'm finally going to do it. I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to discipline myself. I'm, I'm going to be consistent this year. I'm finally going to do it this year. For the vast majority of us, we understand the truism that starting well is easy. Finishing well, that's the challenge. For those who came to faith later in life, we understand the truth that starting well is easy and, and finishing well is a challenge. For some of you that got saved later in life, think of the joy that filled your soul. You were in the Word daily, and it was rich, and you were communing with God. And your prayers, no, they weren't the most theologically accurate, but you were praying. And it was wonderful. And there was a sense of joy, and you had a sense of delight, and it was awesome. You knew one verse. You'd share your faith. You knew one verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. After that, you were out of your depth. You tapped out. You didn't know anything else, but you shared your faith. Now look at some of us. Months later, years later, our time with the Lord is at best erratic. Our prayer life is lifeless. There's no joy there. And some of us couldn't even tell you the last time that we shared our faith. Why? Because we understand the truism that starting well is easy. Big deal. Finishing well. Now that's saying something. There was a famous professor from Dallas, Dallas Theological Seminary. His name was Howard Hendricks. And before Howard Hendricks died in 2013, he did a study. He wanted to know who finished well in the Bible and who didn't. He says this, if you read from Genesis through Revelation, the Bible from beginning to end, and every time you saw a person's name, you just sort of jotted that down. He said that at the end of your reading, you would have discovered that there are about 2,931 people mentioned in the Bible. If you wanted to do a study of which of these 2,931 people had finished well and who didn't, he says there's only sufficient information on about 100 to determine who finished well and who did not. Of those 100, only 30 finished well. Absent from the list, Moses. Absent from the list, Solomon. Starting well is easy. 
Big deal. Finishing well. That's the challenge. Some of you may be thinking, well, what is the big deal? What, what is the big deal about finishing well? Well, my Bible, by implication, tells me that the way that we finish is a big deal to God. Because my Bible does not say that when we get to heaven and behold him face to face, that he's going to say to us, well, start. But hopefully he'll say to us, well done. Because what matters most to God is not how well or how poorly you start. It's how you finish. Listen to me. Can I bless you with something? Because this blesses me. Some of us are here today and we've had poor starts. Poor middles. But the very fact that you're breathing today. The very fact that God has woken you up. The very fact that you're sitting here now is God's way of saying, I'm not finished with you yet. The race isn't over. Get up and by the power of my Holy Spirit, finish well. You might be here today and you're thinking, good stuff, it's sort of ethereal. How do I do that? How do I become a person that finishes well? In our passage, Paul uses the metaphor of a marathon to depict the Christian life. If you know anything about Paul, unlike me, Paul loves sports. And here he's using an athletic metaphor. And in this metaphor, he helps us to see that there are three key ingredients that allow us to be people that hear God say to us, well done. These three ingredients are tied to three key words. The first key word is found in verse 24. Will you look at it with me? Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. First key word is the word run. Paul originally wrote this text in a language called Greek. The Greek word uh, there for run is treka, from which we get our English word trek from. But this word treka, it doesn't so much speak as to the physical, repetitious movement of one's feet. It speaks more to the essence of the runner. It literally means to give it your all. To say it another way, run doesn't so much speak to the runner's actions as it does his attitude. It doesn't so much speak to the runner's motion as it does his motive. It literally means give it your all. Paul says the ones who are going to hear the words well done are those who are committed to radical excellence. My wife and I are blessed with two uh, lovely and talented teenage girls. Uh, pray for me. Some of you, your kids are involved in sports. I know that gets really expensive. My, my girls are really into the arts, musical theater, dancing, singing. While God's gifted them with some amazing natural abilities, there's some pretty hefty expenses that go along with it. There's music lessons, dance classes, all of the fuel getting back and forth from rehearsals and performances. Now, we're not trying to create any long-lasting psychological problems in our kids, but I've got some expectations. I'm not trying to commit all of that time and money to drive my kids back and forth to Greensboro or Yadkinville four or five times a week for six weeks after paying for piano lessons, dance instruction, vocal coaching, tap shoes, jazz shoes, character shoes, paying fees for costume rentals, and, and even some of the plays have a registration fee. No, I'm not trying to do all those things to find out that my kids get dropped off only to goof around and slack off with their friends. I, I don't want to hear a weekend of rehearsal that they're too tired that the director's too tough, 
that the rest of the cast is driving them nuts. No, I'm not going to go through all that time and effort and money. If I'm going to do that, you better not quit. Furthermore, because I believe that God has blessed my girls with an incredible gift and their unique combination of talents and abilities, listen, I'm not going to invest all that time, effort, and finances so that they could go be a stagehand. In other words, I don't want to go through all of that effort to have them doing what I'm doing, and that's watching other people perform in a play. I want to see them give it their all. You better not quit, and you better give it your all. Harvest, there's a misnomer about salvation. The misnomer about salvation is that salvation is cheap. No, no, no. Salvation is free, but it most certainly is not cheap. Just because it didn't cost you something doesn't mean that it didn't cost someone something. See, the marathon of the Christian life had a registration fee. Ours was paid on a hill called Calvary, when Jesus Christ died the horrible death of crucifixion. Do you know where we get the word uh, excruciating from? It comes out of the Latin word excruciatus, ex out of cruciatus, the cross. When they were looking for a word that would be the emblem of pain and suffering, they literally went to the cross. In a little while, we're going to observe communion. It's a time where we get to reflect on what was done by Jesus on our behalf on the cross. But I just want to share with you, uh, growing up, my parents, they they helped with our youth group at at our church. My dad got his commercial driver's license, and every year he would drive um, the church youth group from central Indiana to a camp called The Wilds, which is about three hours southeast of here in a little town called Brevard, North Carolina. I was too young to be a camper, so I stayed with my parents, and when I attended the sessions, I sat in the back. One evening, a man was preaching. I remember it clearly. His name was Dr. Tom Farrell. And as a seven- or eight-year-old boy, I had never been so moved to hear in such graphic detail of what Jesus had done on my behalf on the cross. See, I think sometimes we have these images that maybe Jesus was a little soft. Maybe Jesus was a little wimpy. We've sung hymns like, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. Let me tell you, Jesus is no wimp. And I encourage you, much like the description that I heard as a young boy, if you haven't read it, Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Christ, he interviews a medical doctor who's an expert in crucifixion. He says that more often than not, long nails seven to eight inches long were were nailed not through the hands, through the center of the hands as we think, but through the wrists. And in the Greek word, that's the same piece. So it's the bones right in the wrist. You can feel them right there if you feel And if they did it right, it would typically strike a nerve, causing the hands to draw up like this. Long nails were then driven through the feet. And two centurions would come and they would would drop that cross with the victim nailed to it. They would drop that cross down into a hole and it would dislocate all of the bones in the upper body so so that the person that was being crucified would have to push up on the nail to get the next breath. And eventually, as time went on, the lungs would fill up with fluid. And that person would die 
the painful, long death of suffocation. Do you know the average length of time that it took a person to die the death of crucifixion? Not two or three minutes, not two or three hours, but two or three days. But if you had a nice centurion, he would come over and he would take his club and he would break your legs so that you could no longer push up on the nail, speeding up the process. We know um, that Jesus, with Jesus, no, this wasn't the case. He endured the entire thing for us. John 19, 33 and 34 tells us this, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. You know, it's estimated that Jesus was on that cross for an excruciating 18 hours for you and me. This, of course, all happened after Jesus had been beaten nearly to death. See, the Roman soldiers, they took this flagrum whip, also known as a cat of nine tails. This whip consisted of leather cords that were stranded together and weighted down with lead balls and pieces of sheep bone. The sheep bone was designed to uh, reach into the skin and, and latch onto it and rip it out. The description I heard as a child was in much more detail, but I remember Dr. Farrell talking about how Jesus was tied to a flogging post while the whip was administered repeatedly to his back. In the book of Deuteronomy, Jewish law states that criminals could not receive more than 40 lashes, but remember, this was the Romans. Now, in Roman tradition, you had one centurion wielding the whip, and you had another one stationed looking into the eyes of the one being beaten, signaling the one driving the whip to stop just short of the victim's eyes rolling back in their head. It was extremely bloody, and it was painful. It was a process that was designed not only to humiliate, but to inflict maximum damage. Sometimes people wouldn't survive the torture. They would often bleed to death as their veins and arteries laid bare. Sometimes the beating was so severe that the intestines would fall out. The Romans were barbaric and the skin on the back would be left in ribbons. The Bible tells us by his stripes were healed. Of course, Jesus did survive the beating only to have a painful crown of thorns pressed into his head. The Roman soldiers most likely did not delicately place this monstrous crown consisting likely of two to three inch thorns onto his head. They would have pressed it into his skull. Some suggest that it would have been beaten into his skull with a club so that it pierced and tore into his skin causing blood to run down his face. After mocking him and hitting him some more, they They threw him out in front of the crowd for everybody to see. You know, it's funny to me what people uh, want to get hung up on. There's this debate as to whether or not, uh, after all of that, Jesus carried the entire cross or just the weight of the 125-pound cross member. I believe it was likely the entire 300-pound cross, but I guess it doesn't matter. Salvation is free, but it most certainly is not cheap. See, I think Jesus is a little bit like me with my kids. Don't, don't, come, don't come talking to me midway through the race that the economy is too tough. 
that the marriage is too tense, that the job situation is too hard, the gas too high, the kids too ornery. No, because I paid, you better not quit. And, And not only that, I think that Jesus is not only saying, because I paid, you better not quit. I think he's saying, because I paid, you'd better give it your all. Don't settle for a C, C minus kind of Christianity, but strive for a Hebrews 11, Dean's List kind of faith. Is that you? You know, I thank God that Jesus Christ was on the cross. When he was on the cross, he didn't quit. At any given moment, the Bible says he could have called down a legion of angels, said, I'm done, I'm out of here. I didn't do anything to deserve this. But not only did he hang in there, he gave it his all. He gave it his life. And here's the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, that now that I've been saved, because Jesus didn't quit, and because he gave it his all, all of the Christian life is my response to what Jesus did on the cross. Now the Christian life for me isn't I have to, I have to, but it's I get to. I I get to read the word. I get to pray to the one who saved me. I get to give money to the kingdom. I get to participate in Crash the Dash. I get to work and harvest kids. I get to care for the least of these. I get to because of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. Are you a person of excellence? Those who will hear God say of them, well done, are those who don't quit. Those who give it their all. They're people of excellence. First key word is found in verse 24. It's the word run. The second key word is found in verse 25. Would you look at it with me? Paul says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Every athlete exercises self-control. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Key word there, self-control. If you have NIV, it says competes. The Greek word there is very interesting. Listen carefully, it's agonizomai. Agonizomai. If that word sounds faintly familiar to you, it should. That, that Greek word agonizomai is the, where we get our English word agony or agonize from. Paul says this, the marathon of the Christian life Look at me, like any other marathon, presupposes pain and problems. There will be agony running the marathon of the Christian life. Why? Because it's a marathon. It's not a 100-yard dash. Anyone here ever run a marathon? Anyone? All right, you're my hero right there. Well, in preparing for this message, I uh, put a... I put a, something out on Facebook. I was looking for some friends of mine that have run some marathons. And to my surprise, there were actually several people that responded. One of my responders was my friend Corey, Corey Lyons. Corey and I were in middle school uh, youth group together. We attended uh, the same high school our freshman year. Corey's a member of uh, our sister church, Harvest Bible Chapel in Peoria, Illinois. And uh, that's the church that we're partnering with for this Haiti trip. But here's the thing, not only has Corey run marathons, uh, he's, he's an ultramarathon runner. He's run in over 30 ultramarathons. An ultramarathon is any foot race that is longer than the normal 26.219 mile race. Uh, I was able to ask him, I said, hey, tell me a little bit about the runner's wall. Here's what he said. He said this, the runner's wall is that point in the race. It happens to different runners at different times for different reasons. But for me, it's somewhere around mile 20. 
(laughs) It's at that point in the race, and it's almost surreal. It's an out-of-body experience where your body's just begging you to stop. It's saying, stop, this hurts. But then he said this, those who finish the race are the ones who can push through the pain. Here's one of the most important things I'm going to say this morning. I want you to check a box with me. You're going to have problems. I'm going to have problems. I think we need to straighten out some theology. There's this, you've you've got to be a wise consumer. You've got to be careful what preachers you listen to on podcasts. You've got to be careful what preachers you listen to on the radio and TV. I'm certainly not saying they're all bad. They're not. I listen to some. I'm not saying they're all bad, but hear me. Many of them are preaching this name it and claim it theology that comes straight from the pit of hell. And it goes something like this. Those who have great faith, those who really love Jesus, those who are walking closest to him, they never have any problems and they get everything they want. And if for some reason you do get a problem, it's your fault and God's mad at you. And it makes you wonder, what Bible are they reading from? I mean, they must cut out the entire book of Job. This guy is minding his own business. God describes Job as being perfect and upright. And yet, God recommends Job to Satan. Here's Job, perfect, upright, and in the end, he loses his business. He he goes to a funeral, ten caskets, each one containing one of his children. He's covered in head from head to toe in boils. And And on top of that, to add insult to injury, he's got a wife nagging him, curse God and die, curse God and die, curse God and die. Yet in the text, there's nothing to suggest that Job deserved anything, that that he did anything to deserve that. They've got to cut out the teachings of Jesus. I love this one. Jesus says, you want to follow me? You want to follow me? Great, great. Here's the deal. Before you go to step two, down in the media center in the back, um, here's the thing, and it's in, it's in fine print, but here it is. Get this, ready? Take up your cross, deny yourself daily, follow me. They, they've got a, back, back then the loved ones, the, the cross wasn't a bad day at work. It wasn't somebody giving you a hard time. It wasn't a platinum piece of bling that you hang around your neck. It wasn't bill collectors calling the house. But it was was walking with Jesus so closely that I'm willing to die the same kind of death that he died. They have to cut out the cross itself. What did Jesus do? The perfect son of God to endure the sickness and suffering of the cross. They have to cut out the teachings of Paul. I love this one. Paul wrote Timothy, Indeed, those who desire to be godly in Christ Jesus, not might be, not could be, but will be persecuted. Listen, the Bible says the exact opposite of what these name it and claim it preachers are teaching. Here's what the Bible says. The only way that DJ McKee knows how he and Jesus are doing, it's not on the mountaintops. It's in the valleys. The, the problems of life, you want to know how you and Jesus are doing? You don't find that out when things are perfect. That's not where you find it out. You find it out at the local hospital. You find it out when the pink slip comes across your desk. 
You find it out in the difficulties, the stresses, and the strains of life. And hear me, someone needs to hear this word. It's always good to examine, what have I done? What am I doing? What's God trying to teach me? But Someone needs to hear this word this morning. You're going through a rough time right now. And God's word to you is this. I'm not mad at you. It's called life. Stop racking your brain trying to figure out what you did wrong. Someone needs to hear that. The Bible says, in this life there will be trouble. So the question on the table is not if problems will come. They'll come. At our house, they typically come in multiples. The question on the table is why. Why does God allow problems to come my way? Well, my friend uh, from college, Chris Weinkoop, um, we met there. We're kindred spirits. Um, we still talk every couple weeks. He's a corn-fed Indiana boy. He's one of those barrel-chested guys whose arms don't quite fit down against the side of his body. Um, he was on our college football team. I went to a Christian college, so they weren't like these massive guys. But to me, he was massive. He was 190 pounds, uh, 5'10". And, uh, but he was benching you know, pushing almost 350 pounds uh, on the bench press. And to me, he was a hoss. And, and me, other than being on the swim team, I had really never worked out. Um, but, I, but I wanted to start working out sort of to impress this uh, girl that I liked, who, by the way, is here this morning. <laughs> and so he's going to help me start lifting, right? I'm 165 pounds at the time, and he tells me, you know, for your age... You ought to be able to bench press at least your own, own weight. And so the bench clears. We walk over. He puts these huge plates on the end of the bar. And he tells me, lift this three times. <clears throat> this thing ain't going nowhere. And Coop begins to tap up the bar. Come on, David. By the way, don't call me David. Come on, David, you got this. Put your, back, put your butt back down on the bench and stop arching your back. You got this. You could do that tapping thing again if you want to. Third one. Come on, David. Just think about how good Ginny's going to think you look when you get this thing going. Come on, come on. You got this. I think I got it. When I got up from the bench, he said this. David, if you want to get strong, you got to lift something heavy. Somebody needs to hear that. You know, right now, the, the bar of life is really heavy for some of y'all. Relationship weights, job weights, financial weights, emotional weights, parenting weights. And you're going, I, I can't make it. I'm struggling, but it ain't going nowhere. Paul says, in my weakness, he's made strong. And you need to know that at that point in your life where you're saying, I, I can't move this, God's saying, I got you right where I want you now. Don't quit. And he assigns to you his divine spotter called the Holy Spirit who begins to tap up the bar and whisper in your ear, you can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. 
You are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't quit. Point number one, radical excellence. Point number two, radical endurance. God's word to you, you're wanting to walk out on that marriage. God's word to you, don't quit. There's something I'm developing in you. The reason why there are so many Christians who've been saved for years and years and years but don't have a a, a shred of spiritual muscle is that the moment life gets tough, they put down the bar and tuck tail and run. And God's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what the enemy wants to use to destroy you with, I want to turn that around and, and I want to develop you with it, but will you stay under the weight? Will you stay under it? I've got one more point. What does it take to finish well? Run, radical, uh, radical excellence, because he paid. I don't give up, I give it my all. Self-control, radical endurance. I don't quit. Problems will come. God uses problems in a redemptive way to make me more closely resemble Jesus. Thirdly, look at verse 26. As we conclude, Paul says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. First key word, run, found in verse 24. Second key word, self-control, is found in verse 25, or the idea of competes. The third word is found in verse 27. It's the word preaching. Preaching is an interesting word in our text. Again, it comes from a a Greek word that's really an athletic term. The Corinthians loved their sports. And every every other year, they had their version of the Olympic Games called the Isthmian Games. At these games, before each contest, the referee or umpire would come and announce the rules. He would say, here's what you can do, and here's what you can't do. This is inbounds, this is out of bounds. He would announce the rules. That idea of heralding the rules is really what's translated into our English word preaching today. For our idea of preaching is to announce the rules. Here's what Paul's saying. For anyone who announces the rules over here, but lives over here, that's a problem. Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul goes this way with it. I don't want to be the guy who announces the rules over here, but lives over here. He says, for anybody who announces the rules over here, it could be a parent with a child, could be uh, you with a coworker, it could be a life group leader with their life group. Anyone who says, this is what the Christian life is over here, but then they live over here, Paul says, you're disqualified. He's, what he's arguing for here is integrity. Let me give you a quick thumbnail definition of integrity. Integrity is the alignment of words with deeds. It's the alignment of words with deeds. Or to say it another way, integrity simply means I do what I say. And Paul says, for anyone who talks it over here, but walks it over here, listen carefully, he's not preaching perfection. Listen, all sin is a breach of integrity. What he's arguing for is a way of life. He's arguing for a lifestyle. If I announce the rules over here, and yet I live over here, I'm living in a certain different way than what I just talked about. He goes, you're disqualified. Okay, what's disqualification? Here's what it is not. It is not loss of salvation. Just to be clear, it's not loss of salvation. 
So nobody needs to write a letter to the rest of the elders this week. It's not loss of salvation. But it's this, it's loss of reward. It's loss of reward. Some of you may be sitting here thinking, well, big deal. What's the big deal in losing my reward? You know, as I was going through that box of keepsakes, I, it brought back some memories for me. The college I tended, attended was small enough that they printed all of the names of the graduates on a, uh, on a program. All of us graduates, as we walked onto the football field in our cap and gown, um, each of us got a program, and on the program it listed all, all of our names. I noticed right away that only some of the names had a set of symbols next to them. One set of symbols meant that uh, a certain person had graduated magna cum laude. Uh, another set of symbols next to another name meant that that person had graduated summa cum laude. I looked down to my name. No symbols. It just meant that I had graduated. Thank you, Lodi. Here I am. I'm in my cap and gown. I've just graduated, so I'm done. I'm in. I've got my diploma. I've graduated, but I'm looking at my name, no symbols, and I'm sort of sad. I've graduated. I didn't lose graduation. I've got the diploma. I've done the whole thing with the tassel and cap. I've crossed over, but I'm sad, and I'm looking at my name, no symbols. And I'm reflecting over my time in college. I'm, I'm thinking about my last four years, and I have this thought. I wish I would have tried harder. I wish I would have pushed it just a little harder. You know, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that when we get to heaven, that one day, all of our works are going to go on this conveyor belt, and they're going to go through the fire. And those things that we did in this life that had no eternal value, those, those things are wood, hay, and stubble. And when they go through the fire, they're going to be consumed. There's going to be nothing left to show of those things. But then there'll be other works that we did in, these li- in this life, things that did have eternal value, things that do have eternal reward. And those things are gold, silver, and precious stones. And when that goes through the fire, it's going to be purified. And, and I believe that they're going to go into the making of our crowns. Now, the point of heaven is not to parade around and say, look at my crown, or look, your crown doesn't have any jewels in it. No, that's not the point, for we all are going to lay them at the Savior's feet. But I believe that the person who has nothing to lay at the Savior's feet, they're going to be a little bit like me and how I was in graduation. They're going to reflect on their tenure here on earth, and they're going to wish that they would have pushed it a little harder. They're going to wish that they'd been a man or a woman of integrity. They're going to wish that they have been a person that had finished well. People that finish well are people of excellence, people of endurance, people of integrity. The ushers are going to come forward now, and they're going to hand out the elements of communion doing this a little differently this week. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, or or maybe you're not sure, just let the elements pass you by. No one's judging you in that. I'm going to pray, and I want to use this time. Let us use this time as a time of reflection, but be aware the elements are being passed, so know when they come to you. And let's use this time together 
to reflect and look at what Jesus did on that cross. Would you pray with me?